0: Well, guys, good morning. Say again, Chad? You can look at whatever you want, brother. Doesn't matter. Fine with me. You do whatever you want. Well, guys, good morning. Welcome to Colossae Sherwood. If it's your first time here, I'm Steve. I'm the lead teaching pastor here. Would love to get the opportunity uh, to say hi to you and your family. want to welcome you uh, this Easter Sunday to our church. A couple things I wanted to inform you of as we get started. Um, we are having a women's social Coming up next Friday night at the Garros Barn. Is Ryan and Andrea in the room? Right smack dab in the center. They have a barn here in Sherwood that they've offered to let us use for the ladies to come. Plus mom. mom and dad. Oh, perfect. Well, ladies, come on over. They're going to have uh, $5 glasses of wine, um, just some sodas and some other stuff too. So just an opportunity just to get to know other ladies in the church. So if you are a lady and want to get to know some people, uh, please go next Friday. And then for the gentlemen, we are meeting at Northwest Growlers uh, the week after that, that Saturday, uh, to grab a beer, hang out, and just would love to get the opportunity uh, to meet you and know you. Um, As a church, we long to just do events like this. We long to be the family of God together. Just opportunities for us to get to know who you are, you get to know who we are, and we get to live our lives together. And so if you're joining us today, we are in... Uh, The Gospel of Luke, and we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke for celebrating Easter. And here's the whole theme of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is simply this. Jesus has come to bring release and freedom to those who are in captivity. We've titled our series Release the Captives because when Jesus came, he came to release those who are burdened by sin and in chains to sin, and that's what he's here to do today as well. And as we get started, I want to frame uh, our time together around this idea of rumors and reputations. Um, For us, it's pretty clear that many of us want to have a good reputation in life. That's why we dress the way we do. That's how we present ourselves the way that we do. uh, Because we know that having a good reputation actually can be beneficial to us. Uh, It can get you ahead in business. It can give you a leg up on getting that kid into the charter school that you want to do. There's there's opportunities that can kind of endlessly come when you have a good reputation. On the other side of the coin, if you have rumors that are being spread about you, it kind of seems like your life is constantly trying to put out fires, isn't it? You're constantly trying to say, hey, there's liabilities that come when I have things that are spread about me that are just not true. And what links rumors and reputations together is they're trying to paint a picture of someone's character. Um, a, A rumor is meant to destroy someone's character where a reputation is meant to really clarify or build upon someone's character. And the thing that separates the two, I really think, is very, very clear is it's the time spent with an individual that lets you know whether or not the rumors are true or the reputation is true. Um, if if there were some gossip going around about me that I'm some horrible husband and really bad father, the only way that you would know if that was true is if you'd spent time with me. Now, my hope is that I'm doing pretty good in both departments, so FYI, I think we're doing okay there. But if there's something going around that's being spread about me, then the only way that you would know if it's true is if you actually have some firsthand experience with me. You see how I am with my kids. You see how I am with my wife. You see how I am, how I choose to live my life. And that's going to secede a reputation and make something crucial to, to really build my life upon. The same is true for you. Have any of you kind of had rumors spread about you at some point in time in your life? Right. Have you ever been, have you ever been brave enough to Google yourself and kind of see what, what comes up when you Google yourself? I mean, it could be a, a reputation, could be a rumor, but the reality is there are things that are said for us to consider about our character and who we are. And the only way I know that you're you and the only way that you know that I'm me and being the true me and you being the true you is if we have some extended time together. Your family will tell you who you really are. Your coworkers will tell you who you really are. Your siblings will absolutely tell you who you really are. That's just the reality. So as we come to the text of Scripture today, Luke is going to give us kind of an insider perspective to a conversation that takes place between Jesus and the apostles, and it's surrounding Jesus' reputation. There are things that are being said about Jesus that may or may not be true, but all of this starts because Jesus has a curious question. So if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to be in Luke 9, uh, verse 18. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. It says this, now it happened that as he was praying alone... The disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, the one of the prophets of old that is risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So Jesus is a first century rabbi. He has literally hundreds of disciples that are following him at any point in time. He has an itinerant ministry, which means he's moving from place to place. So I find it humorous in the text that he thinks he has a moment alone. But yet, as he turns around, he notices the disciples are with him. I've, I imagine this like you're sleeping in your bed and you think you're resting, but your kid is about that far away from your face ready to wake you up. You think, you think you're getting some time to rest, but in reality, your kid's about to wake you up in that moment. So Jesus, turning around, he has this opportunity. He's heard of what has been said about him, so he asks this curious question. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? This is the first century equivalent of him going on BuzzFeed trying to figure out what everybody's saying about him. He's picking up the tabloids. He's reading, reading People Magazine, Us Magazine, trying to figure out what people are saying about him. So he goes to the group, and he gets kind of this collective answer. Because of all the rumors that are going around, there's a consistent story that's been spread. Jesus, people say, he's John the Baptist. He's the predecessor. He's like the predecessor who made the way for him. Others say he's Elijah because Jesus himself said he was a prophet, and his ministry demonstrates what a prophet's ministry demonstrates. There's healings. There's release. That's what a prophet does, comes and brings the reality of God to people, and when they hear it, there's change that occurs. And still others look at Jesus that he's just one of the Old Testament prophets. But what's fascinating to me is that as we've been in the Gospel of Luke, what I find fascinating is that Herod has actually heard these same rumors. Just last week we saw that Herod, um, when the the apostles went out to proclaim the kingdom of God, they were healing people. They were uh, seeing people casted out with demons. They were able to proclaim the kingdom of God and the rule and reign of Jesus. They came back and their ministry caused such a ruckus that a Roman uh, ruler named Herod heard about it. And what they heard, what he heard was fascinating. He said, essentially, he's asking the same question Jesus is. Who is this person? And so he was told he's either John the Baptist, he's Elijah, or he's another Old Testament prophet that's risen from the grave. Now, Herod has some insider information, too, because he's actually the one to kill John the Baptist. So he knows that John the Baptist, it can't be. But he knows this movement is starting to take some traction. It's starting to cause some ruckus. And so he, as a Roman ruler, wants to figure out who is this person. Because if he's the ruler, then he's the king. And if there's somebody else who's going to come in and threaten his kingdom, he wants to know who they are and what they're about. What's fascinating is that the apostles actually give the same exact story. I don't know about you, but oftentimes rumors change. You hear one thing from one person, and then you hear another thing from another person. But this story is actually consistent. The same story that Herod heard that Jesus was one of these three people, uh, the apostles come to Jesus and say, yeah, everybody's saying the same thing. You're either John the Baptist, you're Elijah, or you're an Old Testament prophet. And here's the beauty of a rabbi. A rabbi is a master at asking questions. A rabbi is going to ask the right question at the right time, and it's just like a Jedi mind trick sometimes. You're like, oh, my goodness, what just happened? And he does that question to the apostles now. He says, guys, the crowds may say one thing, but who do you say that I am? And like in any family or any organization or any group, there's always one person that speaks up and puts their foot in their mouth first, right? And this guy's Peter. Peter shows up. And Peter, uh, Peter it just finds that hole. He's going to get the ball, get it through, and he's going to get this message to Jesus. So he's going to speak on behalf of everybody and say, hey, Jesus, we believe that you are the Christ of God. We believe that you are the Christ. Now, what's interesting is that the crowds have a different story than Jesus. and that, uh, The crowds have a different story rather than the apostles, and that makes sense. Because the crowds are somewhat at a distance. Um, Jesus has come in to heal them, release them, set them free from their sins and from their demons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and they have had some time to be with Jesus. But the disciples and the apostles have had a lot of time to be with Jesus. With Jesus, they've had firsthand experience. So if there's anybody who's gonna answer this question properly, it has to be the disciples. So it almost seems like Jesus is having this bait and switch moment. Okay, guys, the crowds say one thing, but you guys have been with me. At this point in time in the journey, they've been with them for over a year and a half, 547 days, roughly. They have been with Jesus in the exciting. They have been with Jesus in the mundane. They have been with Jesus through thick, and thin. So if there's anybody who's going to say the right things, it's got to be the disciples. So here's what the, the disciples have experienced since they've been with Jesus. A few of them were commercial fishermen. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene after a long night of not catching fish, all of a sudden Jesus says, hey, push out your boat to the middle of the lake and throw your net on the opposite side. And as they do that, they get the payload of their lives. They catch the most fish they've ever caught ever And what do they do? They realize that this Jesus doesn't just speak to the religious elite, but they speak to their own reality. And all of a sudden, they drop everything and follow. Jesus has cleansed lepers, those throughout the Gospel of Luke who have been outside of the circle of faith, who have been outsiders, those who are not treated properly, those who aren't even treated like humans. They're pushed off to the side. They're unclean. What has Jesus done? He's come in and brought healing to them. He casted out demons to those who are oppressed. He famously on the Sermon on the Mount gave his kingdom ethic on how God's people are supposed to live. If Jesus is Lord, then we don't have an option to live however we want to live. We must fall underneath what he commands us to live. One moment he reaches high into the elite of society and heals a Roman centurion's servant. And then the next moment he reaches low into society and heals a widow and resurrects her son back to life. He forgives a prostitute of her many sins. And it's at this point in time that he's revealing that he is divinity, that he has come to not just bring physical healing, but to raise people spiritually back to life, that their sins could be forgiven, that they could have a new life and a new reality. The disciples have seen Jesus uh, calm the Sea of Galilee with a word, The same God who created all of human history and all of the natural world in which we live silences the storm with the word and they're stunned. He's fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few, uh, few fish. That's the reality. Jesus has shown up and taken what the apostles have brought and multiplied it for the masses. So when Peter declares he's the Christ of God, He's had firsthand experience, day in and day out experience to say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And here's what this means. Christ means that he's the Savior. He's the one the Old Testament has prophesied about, foretold about, that he's going to come and make all things new. He's going to crush the curse of death and that he's going to bring his rule and his reign to this earth and he's going to do it through his people. And if he's the Christ of God, he's not just some random Christ figure. For them in the first century, a Christ figure came up often. There were these self-proclaimed messiahs that would show up, and what they did is they tried to overtake Rome by force. So the term messiah in the first century world was a power-packed term. It wasn't just some random spiritual term that maybe you or I can just look at and attribute it to. It meant something. It was a power-packed word. And what that meant was that when Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Messiah of God, he's not just one who's going to come in like a violent insurrectionist and take over Rome. He's going to conquer in a different way. So Jesus has now asked the disciples and said, Hey guys, who, who do you say that I am? Peter responds properly But then like in any good narrative, what moves a story forward? Is it blissful, happy-go-lucky things? No, it's tension. It's drama. That's why you and I watch The Bachelor all the time. There's drama. That's issues. We want to follow this stuff. That's what keeps the story moving. So when Jesus responds with this statement, he's keeping the story moving. So look at how he responds. Verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So if Jesus is the Messiah, if what Peter has just said is true, This is something to be shouted from the mountaintops. This is something to proclaim widely, to cast your seed broadly so that more and more people would hear that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now, here's where the tension comes in. Jesus tells them to zip it. He says, don't say anything. He says, don't say anything because the Son of Man has to do a few certain things. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite nickname for himself. Throughout the Gospel of Luke. He's referring back to Daniel chapter 7. Where there's this prophecy that one like the Son of Man is going to come and inaugurate the kingdom of God. That through this man, the kingdom of God is going to spread and be made known. And to be established here on this earth. But the only way that this Messiahship is going to move forward. It's going to move forward with Jesus having to deny himself. Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to be... Rejected by the elders and the chief priests, those who should have known who he was. And then he's going to be killed and he's going to be risen on the third day. But put yourself in the apostles' shoes. This is backwards for them. Messiahs don't suffer, Messiahs cause evil people suffering. Messiahs don't suffer, they aren't rejected. They're received. They're they're the ones who are going to bring back power and authority to the Jewish people. And messiahs absolutely don't get killed. They overthrow their oppressors. This goes against entirely what the, the reputation of a messiah was. It's almost as if Jesus is now telling a rumor that these people don't understand. So Jesus, we've been with you this whole time, and you're meaning to tell us that you aren't going to overtake Rome? If if you're the Messiah, you're the one who's supposed to come and defeat evil. And he agrees with that statement. But he says, I'm going to defeat evil a different way. You see, Jesus' statement reinforces the reputation of his own ministry. The true Christ establishes God's kingdom by laying his life down. The true Christ conquers death and conquers an even more evil kingdom than Rome, Satan's kingdom. The true Christ suffers and is rejected so that any and all will not have to suffer and be rejected at the end of time. So he says, guys, you cannot say a word about me right now. Because now is not the right time. But see, as Jesus now works to make his reputation known and not his rumors known, he continues to give his disciples a way of life to demonstrate who he is in their own life. Look at what it says in verse 23 with me. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You see, this is Jesus' invitation to not only to the apostles, but to anyone who was around him, the hundreds of the disciples who followed him. This is his invitation. He says, guys, I want you to experience real resurrection life. To come after Jesus means a denial of yourself. To not put yourself first and foremost any longer. To come after Jesus means taking up your cross daily. For these people, they knew what that meant. They lived in a world of Roman persecution, where if you were the worst of the worst, you would receive the worst death imaginable, crucifixion. Where not only would you be bleeding to die, but you would suffocate and die. The worst, most horrible death known to man. And when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, He's referring to that type of death. And then he says, for order for you to come after me, you actually must follow. You can't trailblaze your own path in life. You have to put me before you and say, yes, I'm going to follow what you are after. Now, if you're a disciple, this gets even more confusing. Why? Because you're already following Jesus. You've been following him for 547 days. And now Jesus is saying, wait a minute, you now have to follow me? I would raise my hand and say, wait a minute, I've been here following you. <laughs> what do you mean? How in the world do you want me to follow you again? But he says it this way. In order for you to gain your life, you ultimately must lose it. In order for you to have real life that Jesus is going to bring you have to die. Even if that means you have the whole world, you may have everything in your life, and then at the end of time, without Jesus, you forfeit everything. Everything this world has to offer could be at your fingertips, and then in the end, without Jesus, you're still forfeiting your life, Jesus is saying. And this is his call to anyone who would follow him. He says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. If you do, you lose your life, but you gain Christ's life. If you don't, you gain your own life, but in the end, you forfeit Christ's life in you. And what we see from this text is that Peter's profession comes from firsthand experience. He doesn't just speak out of turn like he normally does in the Gospels. It's like this is the one moment where Peter got it right. And he said, guys... Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's why you and I are here today. That's why Christians all over the globe are celebrating today. Today is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's profession shows Jesus' true reputation. Regardless of the rumors that may be around, he says he's the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's come to forgive sins and make all things new. And it's today, 2,000 years ago, that Jesus rose from death. There's an empty grave to prove that our Savior lives. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And he has come to offer life to all who long to have it. And this leads us to one question that you and I must consider. And it's this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you believe the rumors about him? Or do you believe the reputation that he has established? You've heard the rumors of the crowds from the text. Jesus is just some reincarnation of some important prophet. He's not the savior of the world. Those rumors are constantly flying around about Jesus. He's a good moral teacher. He had some great things to say. He's a moral citizen that I want to model my life after. But he's not the savior of the world. Those rumors are out and spreading consistently. But today you've heard the reputation of Jesus through firsthand experience from Peter. When Peter says, yes, you are the Christ. So here's the question for you and me. Are you going to believe the rumors or are you going to believe in the reputation? Do you believe that Jesus is the savior of the world? This is the good news. This is the good news that Jesus has come to die in our place for our sins, dying the death that we deserved, and we, in turn, get the life that we don't. By his grace and mercy, he gives us that. And this question has an invitation to it. It's an invitation to true life, to know what life really is about. And each one of us must respond. To be neutral is not a response to this question. You are either for Jesus or you are against him. And today, the call is being made that today you can become a Christian. That you can be like the thousands of people throughout history who have said, yes, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. God has saved sinners and saved a wretch like me. And for those of you who aren't Christians today, that's the call I want to give you. You have a decision to make to believe and profess that he's either the savior of the world or he's not. And there's no middle ground. The beauty is, is, that you and I know how broken this world is. You and I know the reality of our own brokenness. We live in a city where everything looks perfect, but in our hearts, it's not. In our houses, it's not. But Jesus today is giving you a call. If you are not a Christian and you long to be forgiven, if the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart, today is the day that you can receive Christ and become a Christian because Jesus is inviting you into his life. This all goes back to Jesus' reputation. you You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to be a good person. In fact, you're not a good person despite what you think. Jesus is here to tell you the truth, that he loves you and cares about you and longs to bring you into true relationship with himself. And the beauty is, he says, come as you are. The real you, the broken you, the needy you, the helpless you, he's come to forgive you and give you new life. He's come to set the captives free. That's what the whole gospel of Luke is about. What's interesting is that everything about our culture says that we are free when we're actually not. We live in a culture of freedom, but in reality, you and I are in captivity. Do you have an addiction that controls your life? You have to come home and you have to hit the bottle. There's no way to make it work. Are you in an abusive relationship where you walk into sin in your home every single day? Does your anger control every part of you? There's never a point in time from when the moment you wake up to the moment you hit the pillow that you are not controlled by your emotions and your anger. See, Jesus has come to set you free today. And Jesus' message is truly countercultural. If you want to have life, what does he say? He says, Come and die. He says, Come and deny yourself. When was the last time you saw a billboard that said, Hey, you should buy this later? You don't. Because in our culture, what do we do? We think fulfillment here and now is everything. Fulfillment here and now is everything, but the reality is for Jesus to give you true life, you have to deny yourself and realize that no matter how much you fill, you are a bottomless pit that will never be filled until you come to Jesus. For those of you who are Christians, here's the beauty of today. We get to remember that today we celebrate the life that has changed us. Do you remember when you met Jesus? Do you remember the day when you met Jesus? I do. I was down in Simi Valley, California. And I was going to the United Methodist Church. And I had a friend invite me to go to another church in town. And what happened that night changed my life. I met Jesus when I was 14. 14. Lonely, broken, frustrated, sad Steve. And Jesus met me. He changed my life. And he reoriented the entire trajectory of my journey to live for him. So Christians, do you remember that day? Do you remember the beauty of the gospel that you have been saved and God is at work in you? And if you remember that, then Jesus' call to you today is the same You must continue to deny yourself. There is no satisfaction when you put yourself above the kingdom of God. And you and I must pick up our cross where we choose to not just say the cross is the hard things in our lives. We do that in the church all the time. That's not what it means. Picking up your cross is not going to work to deal with your really crappy boss. That's not picking up your cross. Picking up your cross is dying to yourself. Day in and day out so that the kingdom of God would be made known. And then we have to truly follow him. Do what he says. If he's Lord, we live as if he's Lord. We are no longer Lord. But this is the question he asks today, and there's no neutrality. You must respond to the empty grave. You must respond to the empty tomb. You must respond to the history of Christianity where Jesus is either Lord, lunatic, or a liar, famously as C.S. Lewis says. Today is a day to respond. And so here's the deal. We're going to go to the tables. We have communion right here on the landing planes. And if you are a Christian, I want to invite you to come and take communion. Remember the broken body and blood of Jesus for you. And then we're going to sing and we're going to worship. Kale and Marcus are going to come up and we're going to sing. And as we sing, we're going to have some friends just on the side of the room. Here's the deal. If you want to become a Christian today, during this time of worship, walk up to Tony or Kathy or Andrew and Leanna and say, yes, please, I want to follow Jesus. Jesus can change your life, friends. The empty tomb is proof that resurrection life is possible. And so I want to invite you to that today. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for today. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the triumphant victory that your reputation is sure. Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the one who's come to give us life. And today, Father, we want to receive that life. We want to receive that life through those of us in this room who aren't Christians, who want to become Christians today, that your spirit would, would change them and they'd choose to follow. For those of us who are Christians, God, would you solidify our faith, remind us that what we believe is actually true. And because of that, God, would you send us out of here on a mission to let the world know that you, Jesus, are alive.